listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. It'll be a great, great time to dive into this text as we continue in our series, 29, God is desiring to write a new chapter through you that's never been written. It would be the question I would pose, is the gospel true? Is the gospel reliable? When we look at what we call the gospel, the good news, the teachings of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection, is it trustworthy? And I can tell you this, that the Christian uh, faith, the foundation for everything that we believe and the foundation for our faith hinges on one thing, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this statement. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. Some of the other translations would say futile, vain. It's void. It means absolutely nothing. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, he even says in 1 Corinthians 15, the proclamation in preaching makes no sense. Why would you preach about something that's not true? But if it is true, and we believe that the door of Christianity swings on the hinges of the resurrection, we believe it is the most critical, crucial aspect of our faith. That Jesus is not like Muhammad or not like Buddha or not like any of the other world religious leaders that Jesus actually conquered death hell in the grave and did not stay in the grave when they placed him there. We even go so far here at the Cross Loganville to believe this. I want you to get it. That we believe that Easter which focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a once-a-year event to celebrate, but it is a daily thing that we embrace that gives us hope in life every day. So for us as evangelicals, we get excited about every day because every day we celebrate the resurrected hope that Jesus has conquered death all in the grave and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Hold that thought. Let me illustrate with this. I thought this was a great illustration. An airline pilot shared this story. He said, you know, outside of the cockpit door of every commercial airliner, there's a telephone handset that allows the flight attendant to talk to the pilots. And inside the cockpit on the center console is a door unlock switch that allows the pilots to open the cockpit door without ever getting out of their seats. If a flight attendant at 8.45 a.m. on 9-11-2001 had asked me if she could come up front and talk with me, I would have unlocked the door for her without hesitation. But by 9.15 a.m. that same morning, only 30 minutes later, messages were being sent to all commercial airline pilots about what was happening in our nation. One of those messages read, four Al-Qaeda terrorists have stormed the cockpit of United Flight 93. Other messages were coming in that the Twin Towers were collapsing and that the nation was under fire. And the pilot said this, he said, what changed during those 30 minutes what changed during those 30 minutes is called an impact event. An impact event has the power to change what we think and the way we think about it forever. What happened some 2,000 years ago 
when Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave and was raised up on the third day was the most impactful event that has ever happened in human history. It changes what we think. It changes the way we even reason and think about life. Now, there's a Jewish phrase called olam haba. Now, I introduced you guys to when we were talking about death a few years ago to tikkun olam. And I like, like getting history from a Jewish perspective, olam haba. And it really is about the afterlife or it's the world after death. The problem is olam haba in Judaism is rarely discussed or talked about because most people in Judaism do not believe that anything of life substance happens beyond the earthly life of an individual, and when they die, it's over. Barb even told me about friends up in Canada, Jewish friends, that had loved ones that would die, and they would go there, and for that week they would shut everything down, and there's weeping, and there's sorrow, and there's no taking a bath and taking a shower, and there's no putting of makeup, there's no looking at a mirror, nothing of that sort, because there's no hope. The person is dead. It's over. And that was the mindset for many in first century Judaism. I mean, you had some uh, Egyptians there in that uh, culture. They mummified bodies. You had some Greeks and some Romans, and there were some thoughts that maybe some underworld destination might be possible. The Sadducees were all against any type of resurrection. That's how I first memorized that. For some of you going to church, that's how maybe you got introduced. They were Sadducees because they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's how we remembered that, right? But no one believed in a bodily resurrection, the problem was an impact event had happened, and Jesus did the impossible. And not only did he do the impossible, even after he raised from the dead, he revealed himself over a 40-day period of time to these apostle disciples, these guys that had hung out with him. John MacArthur said this, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. Without the resurrection, none of the other truths matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be wishful thinking. Without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing more than a human philosophy or a religious uh, speculation. Without the resurrection. You see, it is the separator of all events that have ever happened in human history. And the evidence of the resurrection hinges on the credibility of these witnesses. It is a historical event. You'll get people into the science stuff, and they're like, well, I, I believe in, the, in scientific data. And, 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 and in order for science to be leveraged, it has to be able to be repeatable. And, and, and so for a lot of people that believe only in the scientific approach, they eliminate any historical facts as being able to be leveraged because they believe, well, no, it's got to be repeatable. Well, even the very fact of, of me being born cannot be repeatable because it's a one-time event. And the same thing with Jesus raising from the dead is a historical event. Now, a credible witness, a credible witness is so important. And a credible witness had to be competent and they had to be worthy of belief. Think about it. Because of their personal experience, because of their knowledge and a 
because of a sense of honesty. That it, 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 you, you look and go, are they legit? Can they be trusted? Even in trials today, again, I love following trials. The judge and jury will oftentimes use these same factors to determine whether they believe the witness is credible. Dialed 911. He didn't report a mugger or a burglar. I don't know what it was. This thing was 10 foot tall. He had beautiful hair. We recommend against calling 911. You're just going to put your foot in your mouth, your big foot. Get. Genimos. Get. CNN. And he went right back out that path again. New York. Some people in the Crichton area of Mobile say, a leprechaun has taken up residence in their neighborhood. A leprechaun. NBC 15's Brian Johnson has more. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community. Many of you bring binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. All I gotta do is look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? yeah! This amateur sketch resembles what many of you say the leprechaun looks like. Others find it hard to believe and have come up with their own theory. Nick, you won't believe what I saw today. I was in the gym uh, getting ready to get the trash. Ronnie Milan was in here dunking the basketball. He looked just like Spud Webb dunking the basketball. I don't believe it. I can't. Well, that couldn't happen. I saw it. I saw it. I'm a witness. Isn't that not great? Okay. But you... You, you've been there with me. You see Bubba from North Carolina talking about a 10-foot-tall Peter Frampton hairdo. He said good-looking hair. Looking at that dude, I don't even know what good-looking hair means to him. But I watched that video, and I was like, you're not credible. Then you got Goldtooth Homie straight out of Mobile, and the sketch they created that they've seen a leprechaun, I go... And then, Don, that was beautiful that they talked you into filming that because we know we love Ronnie, but he can't even touch the nets unless Ronnie could dunk if it was that little tyke's goal I bought for Cedar. But here, here, here's the thing. Here, here's the thing for real. A credible witness has to be competent and worthy of belief. And everything that we study and we read and even Luke is writing in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in the book of Acts, hinges on the credibility of these witnesses. Now listen to this. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to these men, apostles. If you read Acts 1, verses 12 through, you'll see that there was other women and others, about 120 maybe, gathered there, Jesus presented himself alive to these men by many convincing proofs. He proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. So, Jesus is, you remember he, when he calls these guys, they're probably 17 years old, and he says, come follow me, which means I believe in you, and you've got what it takes to be just like me and be my my disciples. Now, they have walked with Jesus for this period of time, and now he's been crucified, buried, and he's revealing himself to them, and they're blown away. It's like by many different signs and wonders and proofs, he reveals himself. 
Again, their credibility is crucial for what we say we believe. That's how we get the canonized word of God. And Luke wanted his readers to know two things when you study the book of Acts. One, Jesus had been raised from the dead. He had conquered death, hell, and the grave. And number two, the credibility of these guys can be trusted. They are credible witnesses. Those are two things that we've got to understand to appreciate even when we dive into the book of Acts. So then I think you've got to ask the question, what would make them credible witnesses? What would make a guy a credible witness when it came to uh, substantiating the claims that, that Jesus Christ was not only Savior and Lord, but he's Savior and Lord, he's conquered death, hell, and the grave? One, I would tell you this. I'm going to give you four things. One, the apostles knew that Jesus was Lord of all. They knew he was Lord of all. They had spent three years with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had talked with Jesus. They had listened to the teaching of Jesus. They had ate with Jesus. They did life for three years, if you will, pretty much uninterrupted with Jesus. They, they, they walked with him when he was tired. They were around him when he was hungry. You want to get to know somebody? Hang out with them when they're tired and hungry. It's hard to be a saint when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you haven't had anything to eat, when you're lonely, when you start getting angry. They had hung out with him. They, they hung out with him when he was arrested. They hung out with him when he was mistreated. They hung out with him when people cursed him and dogged him. They hung out with him finally all the way up until the point of his crucifixion. And if you study the gospel accounts, all four, but even specifically as Luke captures it, here's what you'll find. They were convinced that he was fully man and fully God. He was 100% man in flesh, but he was the God-man. And that's the reason even Paul would write later to Timothy. There is one man between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who is God, Lord, and Master of all. So when you start to study, you go, they, they, they really believe that he was Lord? Peter even calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word Lord means master, authority, ruler. He's Lord. If you go back even to that miraculous catch of fish when Peter was on the boat, and all of a sudden Peter falls on his face and he looks and he goes, Oh, Lord, depart from me. I'm not even worthy to be around you. Lord, master, God, I don't deserve to be around you. They were convinced that he was God in flesh. Even Thomas, that doubter, that disbeliever, when he saw the risen Christ, you know what he called him? He said, my Lord and my God. Did, did you hear me? He didn't call him small g God. My Lord and my God. Your, your deity, your authority, your master. And, 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 and Jesus says, Thomas, uh, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who don't even see me and still believe. But what did he call him? He called him Lord and God. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew had a gig. Matthew was making money. Matthew had this gig of a little bit of crooked ways and greed working inside of him. And he meets Jesus and radically repents. And he follows Jesus as Lord. Read the stories throughout the pages of the New Testament. These men were convinced that Jesus Christ was Lord of all. So when we talk about the credibility of what we're reading, it's not like some random dude, man, who spotted Bigfoot or seen a leprechaun. That's not what, 
We're talking about a group of people that have walked with him, had, had done life with him, and they go, he's legit. Do you know that all of these guys minus one, John the Beloved, he would die an old man's death after he was boiled in water and he was being absolutely attacked and persecuted for his faith. Do you know that every one of these guys died a martyr's death, which means they were killed? Why? Because they believed and proclaimed, proclaimed, proclaimed. They preached the gospel that Jesus Christ was God and that he had defeated death, hell, and the grave. Did you hear me say that every one of them died a martyr's death? Why would they do that? Would you die for a story that was not true? Would you collaborate with your homies and stay with a story if you knew it was not true? No, they believed it. Here's the, here's the separator in the, cult, in the Southern culture. Please hear me. When we talk about believing, we're not talking about just acknowledging that Jesus lived or that Jesus was a good teacher or that Jesus died on the cross or that Jesus was right. We're not talking about acknowledging that. We're talking about violently repenting of any other type of belief system and going all in with our surrender and yieldedness to Christ. That's what we're talking about. These guys were all in. You've got to ask, do I truly, personally believe, believe, again, the Greek word is pistis, which means to be persuaded to action. Do I believe that Jesus is Lord of all? Do you? That's the gospel. The second thing I would tell you is this. The apostles were men of obedience and prayer. Study even Acts chapter 1 here. Jesus told them in verse 4 of chapter 1, I want, you to, I want you to stay in the upper room. They've seen him crucified. They've been over to Gethsemane. They've seen him pour drops of blood as he was sweating and crying out praying. They've seen him crucified. Now they've walked back over about a half-mile journey to the upper room. He said, I want you to go over there and stay, and I want you to wait. I want you to stay, and I want you to wait. And I want you to hear this loud and clear because this is for somebody in here today. Waiting does not mean that you're inactive. Waiting does not mean that you're chilling, just eating popcorn, drinking Dr. Pepper, just killing time. They were waiting. They were anticipating. They were watching. They were pressing into God. They were together, waiting, proactive. When you read even Acts chapter 1, look at verses 12 and 13. They had devoted themselves to obey the Lord. We're going to wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good cheer. Wait. It's not time. They're 21-year-old dudes probably by now. He told us to wait. Everything they had seen, they're waiting. For 40 days, he's been ministering to them, the resurrected Christ. He, he then showed up. He's walking with them, talking with them, and they're blown away like, hey, we hung out with him for three years. <clears throat> we thought he was crazy at times. We saw him walk willfully the Via Della Rosa. We saw him crucified. We saw him annihilated. We saw him placed in the tomb. And one thing we know over this last 40 days, he's been hanging out with us. He told us to wait, and we are waiting because he's alive. We're not hanging out and, and, and serving some dead God. And it says right here, they, they, verses 12 and 13, man, they were, they were pressed in. Verse 14, 
They were committed to fellowship with one another. Hey, guys, we, we're in this thing together. He told us to wait. There's men. There's women. There, there's a group of them who had walked with him, who had seen the miracles. Hey, guys, we, we've got to keep this connection going. We, we've got to keep the fellowship going. And I'm telling you right now, it's so important even the psalmist would say, oh, how good and how blessed it is for brothers and sisters implied there to dwell together in unity. We've got to stay locked in on the gospel. And the thing that hurts the church at large in our nation and even globally at times is all these divisions and whatever. People start separating over this and that. And it hurts the spread of the gospel because people are not committing to fellowship. And koinonia is the Greek word. Verse 14, they were in constant prayer. That's what it says. They were praying, pressing in. They had already asked Jesus, teach us to pray. He goes, when you pray, pray this way. Pray our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Uh, he's like, man, I, 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 I want to learn to pray. He, he goes, here, I'm going to teach you to pray. Read it. Hey, don't lead us into temptation. Give us strength. We need you, Jesus. They were praying. What specifically? We don't know. Were they praying for courage? I, probably they needed it. Were they praying for patience to keep waiting? Yes, they needed it. Were they praying for understanding? Yes, they needed it. Was, were, were they possibly just praising God that for 40 days they had had a crash course with a risen Savior that blew their minds? Possibly. They were praising God. They were together. They were locked in, and they were actively waiting. I think a lot of times when you hear people teach, hey, man, you've got to wait on the Lord, like Isaiah 4031 would say, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It doesn't mean I'm propped up, I'm chilling, I'm vegging, I'm, I'm disengaged. It doesn't mean that. It implies fasting. It implies on your face. It implies seeking. I'm waiting. I'm not doing anything until God gives me a breakthrough and permission. I'm waiting. I love that. You, you see, these, these dudes, man, they... they, they they were obeying the Lord. They were serious about their walk with the Lord. I can tell you another thing about them. They, they were committed to the Word of God. They were committed to the teachings and truth. Verses 15 and 16 says, they contemplated and meditated, and they were there processing what God, through Christ, had been teaching them in the Word. They had some background. They had some history of the Word. But during this 40-day ministry to the apostles, Many scholars believe that Jesus was giving them explanation and revelation in regards to so much of the Old Testament. Hey, guys, let me tell you what this means. Let, let me tell you why it's worded that way. And they, and they had been hanging out with God in flesh, the greatest teacher ever known, as he explained and expressed to them, here's what this means. And you will see that even Peter here in this passage quotes from Psalms. You will see that when he starts preaching at Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel. You will see these guys were well aware and in tune with the teachings of Torah and Scripture. It's, it's amazing. Even when you read that Judas would go out and, and betray uh, Jesus and betray the rest of the disciples and he would sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and eventually go out and, and hang himself Peter quotes from uh, Psalm 69 as well as Psalm 109, and he makes this statement. He goes, hey, guys, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. 
What do you mean it had to be fulfilled? And he quotes this passage of saying, God told us this was going to happen. He uses the word had. It had to happen. The word had, write this down. It refers to divine necessity. It was divinely necessary. It had to go down. Is he still responsible for what he did? Yes. But I'm telling you, it had to happen. He was going to sell out. And, and it deals with God as sovereign even in the midst of betrayal and crucifixion. He's still sovereign. And can I tell you something? These dudes, they were men of prayer. They were men of obedience. They were pressed in. They believed that he was Lord. They were men of the word. They struggled trying to make sense of how a guy like Judas, who was selected by Jesus, they struggled making sense of how a guy that was cut in and given such privilege and opportunity would do such a thing. How could you turn your back on him? How could you sell out? How, how could you eventually go out and kill yourself and just hang yourself out of, out of guilt and shame or whatever? And can I tell you, over the years, over the years, anybody is capable of royally screwing it up. I am, Nick, Dustin, Ronnie, any of us are. Rick, Steve, look at us. Are you capable of screwing it up? Yes. But it's broken my heart multiple times over the years when I look at a guy going, but you were walking with Jesus. You, God had raised you up and you were preaching the gospel and you just, you abandoned your wife and you hooked up with this other chick and you almost denounced the faith. Then why would you do that? You, you said you believe this and then the pressures come and you, 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 you just checked out on us. You were running well at one time and you just sold out for the world. Or, and these guys were struggling. I struggle at times going, that breaks my heart. Why would he do that? And God goes, man, without my grace, you're going to jack it up royally. Without my Holy Spirit being inside of you, you're going to jack it up royally. I can tell you something about these guys here. They were 20, 21, 22-year-old dudes. They're like, we're going to obey Jesus. We're going to walk in integrity, and we're going to be men of prayer, and we're going to be men of the Word. That's the reason even when we pick it up later, that even after uh, the, the gospel is starting to go out and people are coming to faith, in Acts chapter 6, you will see Peter. Again, they're 21, 22-year-old dudes. Okay, they haven't been to seminary. They, they hung out with Jesus. They don't have all this church experience. There's not all these models to follow. They're walking in the Spirit. Remember in Acts 6, that's where he goes, hey, guys, it's not good. This is what he says. It's not good for us to neglect the Word of God. That's when they select the first seven guys that would serve as deacons to help out with some of the responsibilities. Do you hear me that the Word of God was foundational and central for these guys? We've got to know the word. In our day, there's so much postmodern belief and there's so much opinion-oriented junk being thrown at us today. And if we're going to sanctify Christ as Lord and be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, we have to know the word. Because grass is going to wither and flowers are going to fade, but the word stays and remains forever. And you've got to know it. 
again, you're going to have arguments and conversations with people. And the only thing I've got is, here's what God says. They were men of the word. And you've got to ask yourself, am I a student of the word? Do I hide his word in my heart? Do I memorize the word? Here would be the fourth thing, which ties into what I said right out of the gate. They were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw it. The apostles, when you study their lives, they were not religious geniuses. Most of them were a bunch of redneck dudes hanging out, fishing, man, throwing the net out. Just They were fishermen. They loved the outdoors. They were just good old boys, right? They were not these brilliant philosophers. They were just outdoor kind of guys. Jesus revealed himself to these fishermen to remember shepherds out taking care of sheep. He comes to them. He just goes to common people. You go, but, but these guys that we read about, they're preaching these powerful sermons. They were not trained theologians. They were, listen, 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 listen. They were just witnesses. They just saw it. They just experienced it. And they spent the rest of their earthly lives proclaiming it to other people. Did you hear me? They were witnesses. They saw it. They experienced it. And they spent the rest of their life proclaiming to others that Jesus was God, that Jesus saves, and that a person's life could be radically changed. That, that, that's what they did. And when I first got saved, I was scared to death. Jimmy, you're scared. I get it. I get saved. I'm scared. Hey, Tim, you were a hell-raising, dope-smoking, beer-guzzling, womanizing. What happened to you? Baseball was your God. Dude, you were a sports junkie. What happened to you? I experienced the risen Christ. I encountered the risen Christ. And as a result of encountering and embracing the risen Christ, I witnessed it. I saw it. He brought about this radical change. So what are you going to do? I'm supposed to go proclaim it to others, but I'm scared to death to do it. Then go anyway and do it, but I'm scared. I'm dumb. I don't make any sense. This is not going to come out right. Go do it anyway. Okay. Go do it. What are you going to tell them? I don't know. Well, just tell them what you saw, what you experienced, and what you've witnessed in regards to what God has done in your life. Great. I can do that. I don't, I don't have to know all this scripture. No. You don't have to memorize. I didn't even know what the 66 books of the Bible were. And when I went back to play ball, I came to faith in October of 85. And I go back at my first spring training to play. And I'm like, I got to find some dudes that are walking with Jesus. Because all them dudes over there, I was running like a wild man with them last year. And I can't do that anymore. But I love them dudes, but I got to find some guys that are really pursuing Jesus. And so I got in these Bible studies. But guess what? All them dudes that I was running with the year before, guess what I did? They're like, dude, let's go. Let's run. I can't. What happened? Casual language has even changed, dude. What's up with that? Let me tell you what happened. Okay? 
And I told him what happened. Man, I met Jesus. Can't, I don't even want to do that anymore. And the gospel has changed me. There were eight players on that team that year that prayed to receive Christ. I'm like, I got to go tell him. The pitching coach gave his life to Christ. His wife reached out to me here recently. He died about five years ago of cancer. And she goes, Tim, that, that meeting you and him had in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1986 radically changed that dude for the rest of his life. My buddy Charlie Taylor. It's like, there you go. Just go tell him. Just put a verse on your head. Just go, just go live it out. Were you scared? Yes. What do you know? I know that God loves me and he, God loves them. And I know that living like hell was not what I was supposed to do, but it's what I was doing. But I know that I got ambushed by the gospel and God forgave me and saved me and he wants to do the same for them. Then go tell them. You know what I've come to realize? That a good witness don't invent stories. They just truthfully tell exactly what they've seen and heard. Hey, don't invent it. Don't make it up. And there's a lot of people, man, even in the church that are like spiritual travel agents. They're wanting to tell other people stories about somebody they met instead of what happened to them. The gospel is for you. They were credible witnesses because they believed it. Let me say it again. The Christian faith was founded on this historical event. It happened. It was founded on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It happened. It was founded on the credibility of these guys. It happened. And here's something I wrote. If it is true, everything that else, everything else that follows works. But if it's not true, nothing else that follows matters. Is it true? Lee Strobel wrote all these books as an agnostic, right? Uh, he, he wrote them later after he came to faith in Christ, but he was an agnostic. He was this journalist, and he goes, no, nah, that's not true. That's not true. Ends up writing the case for Christ, the case for the creator. Listen to what Lee Strobel said. He goes, I love this quote right here. You're going to dig it. He goes, faith is taking a step in the same direction that evidence is pointing. It's like, hey, what did you do? Well, the evidence is pointing that he is not here, he is risen. Okay. Evidence is pointing in this direction. That's the reason Josh McDowell wrote his book, and I've got the two-volume set, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And there, we've got evidence. And so faith is taking a step in the same direction that the evidence is pointing. Study the apostles. Were they political men? No. Were they men with positions? No. Did they have popularity and notoriety? The other rabbis had already passed them over. They're not sharp enough. They're not good enough. What did they have going for them? They hung out with Jesus and they were servants. We're just going to serve. And I've told you before, the word servant means under rower. It's the portrait of the person down in the belly of the ship that's just rowing the captain is calling the shots. The captain is saying, here's where we're going. The captain is saying, here's what we're doing. But a servant was out of sight. He just honored what the master said. He was an under rower. They were servants. They didn't make this about them. They didn't leverage their position. This, this incredible, they, got, they were hanging out with God. They didn't leverage it for their own gain. And I've seen so many over the years abuse positions of authority and abuse positions of influence. 
And you study church history, and we've seen that happen so often. And so many, Brian, different denominations and moves. And just seeing the power struggles that have happened in certain groups out there over the years. And seeing the political structure that they assemble inside whatever their religious movement is. And seeing men and women jockey for position. But the apostles said, no, we're just, we're just, we're just servants. And even when Judas hangs himself, man, they're heartbroken. And they're like, hey, you know, we've got to replace him. We need another dude, man. We need to get this thing back. We need a full team. We need to get it back to 12. And, uh, but here's the deal. Uh, if we're going to pick a dude, there's two things that are, are crucial, non-negotiables. One, they've had to be with us from the time Jesus started his earthly ministry. And they had to be a witness and see the resurrection of Jesus. They're like, well, there's only two people that fit that criteria. They're like, well, who is it? Well, you got Justice and you got Matthias. And they're like, well, that's the criteria. They didn't say, let's go and look at who finished first in their class, who's the fastest, the strongest, the smartest. Let's, hey, here's the criteria. The credibility of a witness is absolutely essential. One, they had to walk with him. They've had to be with us for all these years. Yep. And uh, they had to witness the resurrection. So they cast lots, which really in that day was kind of like flipping a coin. You can read all you want on it. This is the last scenario where casting lots appears. They did it, you know, when Jonah was on the ship. There, there's other places you'll read. And they cast lots. Once the Holy Spirit came, they're like, dude, this guessing game is over. And I can promise you, based on the humility of the disciples and the apostles here, I would tell you that Justice and Matthias both probably had the same level of humility, and neither one of them really cared which one of them had the title attached to their name. They were all in of following Jesus. It's not like, hey, it, 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 Matthias, it falls to you. It's not like Justice picked up his ball and bat and went home and said, well, I won't play with y'all anymore. I guarantee he's like, I haven't been following in a part of this because of having a title. And you don't even read anything else about Matthias in the Bible after this anyway. It's like we're in this thing together. Do you see together, together, koinonia, koinonia, fellowship, serve? Was the mindset here? It's like, Lord, we need you to guide us. So here's where, here's where I land. God wants you and wants me to know that the Christian faith is credible. It's true and it's reliable. It's not based on religious speculation. It's based on the historical fact of the resurrection that Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. That's where I'm landing. The one event that proves that Jesus is God is the resurrection. All them other world leaders, when they buried him, stayed in the ground. Twelve godly witnesses proclaimed that Jesus Christ was risen, risen from the dead. And every one of them went to his grave declaring that story. As I said, all of them died a martyr's death minus John the Beloved. Most of them, most of them, even the other disciples that are not mentioned with the 12 died martyr deaths because of their pursuit of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. And I do not believe for one second that they would be willing to suffer 
the way they did, even to the point of death, if they had collaborated and created just a stinking lie of a story. They died because what they were saying was true. And you know, I've, I've pondered this and I've looked at this over the years. When Jesus Christ is preached as Savior and Lord, lives are transformed. Peter stands up here in chapter 2, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, and when he preaches, lives are transformed. Was there anything fancy or cute about what he preached? No, it was straight, hardcore, Jesus risen from the dead, and he says, repent, y'all are the ones that killed him. When the gospel is preached, lives are transformed. Where the gospel is preached, nations are changed and made better. When you see communist dictatorship and different things happening in certain places that try to eliminate God, the voice of God in reasoning, I can promise you that country will not get better. Where the gospel is preached and people cry out to God and turn to God, those countries become better. As I watch what's been happening over the last months again, and we've been living with heightened crazy chaos of certain people coming onto the scene trying to change what we think and the way we think about a lot of different things for the last few years. But I promise you, I believe that we're going to see revival take place in the Ukraine. I believe you're going to see more people rallying together, seeking God, crying out to God, and you're going to see people repenting and coming to faith in the Lord like never before in the Ukraine. Because persecution has a way of bringing about the presence and power of the gospel. I believe that you're going to see people even in Russia that do not agree with the communist mindset, and you're already seeing some of the tilting there. You're going to see people there crying out and asking God to intervene and lead their country. I believe you're going to see nations like Poland and others that are opening up their arms saying, come here. I believe you're going to see those countries who are showing the heart and kindness of Jesus start to experience revival. I believe here at the Cross Loganville, if we violently repent and surrender and yield it all to the Lord Jesus, I believe that we will see revival in the next days and weeks like we've never seen before. But it's going to require us yielding it all. It's going to require us being willing to suffer persecution, attacks, and different things. And if you're addicted to being liked, and noticed and appreciated, that's probably not going to happen in your home. But if you're okay with not being liked and being rejected at times and betrayed, a lot of that was the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is proclaimed, here's something I've seen. Somehow thieves become honest. Somehow drunks get sober. Somehow druggies drop the needle and the spoon. And somehow those who hate all of a sudden become channels of love. Well, the gospel is pe preached and people respond to it. Josh Lee, I see amazing, amazing, amazing things happen. But where God is eliminated and Christ is not recognized, elevated, and celebrated, I see nations that are ruined. You look at the island of Hispanola and the history there over the years. Richie was here a few weeks ago. You see part of that nation, part of that island, open to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the good news called the Dominican Republic. And you see that God has placed his favor in certain things that have happened there. But you see the rejection of God in certain things that have happened on the other side of the island of Hispanola, of Haiti, 
into witchcraft and different things, and you've seen a lot of pain and turmoil. A nation that will return back to God and seek God, watch what God does. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and bring about healing to their land. Thank you.